often referred to as the Big Little Railroad, New Jersey's Central Railroad has only 700 route miles, but totaled over 2,000 miles of track. And what it lacked in length, it made up for in the sheer amount of traffic it handled daily. Four to six main tracks would see 300 commuter trains carrying 35,000 riders daily. In addition to this, it also saw many local and long-distance freight lines and passenger trains across the state. Much of this railroad's legacy has been tragically lost to time. Its long-abandoned terminal sits still near the state's largest urban park, complete with its tall, Romanesque walls, welcoming all who come to admire the hidden remnants of this marvel well after its days of service have long passed. So join me in discovering what remains of the forgotten Central Jersey Railroad. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. To understand the origins of the Central Railroad, let's look back at New Jersey. In the early 19th century, factories steadily replaced artistry shops as rural villages became cities and machines running on water and steam power became more mainstream. The towns provided many new jobs for immigrants and residents of the state alike. These years were incredibly transformative to the Garden State, and it wasn't long until it began to see the construction of canals and railroads. The New Jersey Almanac states that the canals and railroads, along with bridges and toll roads, became a significant source of economic growth and revenue for the government. These included the third ever covered bridge in America between Phillipsburg and Easton, designed by the Easton Delaware Bridge Company. Then you had the first New Jersey Turnpike from New Brunswick to Phillipsburg. We can also recall the Savannah, the first vessel to cross the Atlantic partly on her own steam. These transportation revenues paid for most of the New Jersey state government's expenses. You might even say that the travel industry was the fuel for the fire of New Jersey's growth, allowing it to reach new heights. However, with a growing economy that became increasingly industrial, there was also an ever-increasing need for more efficient ways of travel. In 1830, the state of New Jersey finally approved a charter for the Camden and Amboy Railroad. Its founder, Colonel John Stevens from Hoboken, had been trying to petition for his railroad for almost 20 years. Eventually, Stevens and the state reached a compromise. The railroad would have executive rights to carry passengers between the Hudson and the Delaware Rivers. In return, the state government was promised 1,000 shares of stock in the company and a guaranteed $30,000 yearly from the passenger and freight taxes. And as we have already learned in a previous video about the lost canals of New Jersey, the years after receiving this charter, the Camden and Amboy combined its efforts with the Delaware and Raritan Canal Company, founded by Princeton's Stockton family, forming the joint companies. This granted a monopoly over water and rail, allowing the railroad to charge incredibly high rates. However, this railroad also operated at extremely high cost. It also was not immune to incident. Only two months after it began the operation of steam locomotives, in 1833, it saw its first deadly railroad accident. Two were killed during a trip from Hydestown to Sportswood, and many more were injured. The train had been traveling at a speed of 35 miles per hour, when, despite having slowed to 20 miles per hour, a journal box overheated and caught fire, causing an axle to break on one of the carriages, derailing and overturning the train. 
trade. Cornelius Vanderbilt, who would later become one of America's wealthiest men thanks to his ownership of many railroads, was also injured in the accident, swearing that he would never travel by train again. The former US President John Quincy Adams was also present at the accident, but thankfully left uninjured. The late president went on to write that this accident was the most dreadful catastrophe that my eyes beheld. The Central Railroad of New Jersey's origins can be traced back to two small railroads in the early 1800s, the Elizabeth and Somerville Railroad and the Somerville and Eastern Railroad. Construction started in the east and slowly but surely spread across the west. In 1835, as the railroad gathered the money it needed, its first full segment reaching from Elizabeth to Cranford, which at the time was called Crane's Foot, was completed in 1836 after a slow construction and operated under horsepower. It wasn't until 1839 when the railroad would reach Plainfield. 1839 was also the year that steam power arrived. Before this, trains were horse-drawn. A single locomotive named Eagle provided power as the Elizabeth and Somerville Railroad stretched further east. However, the revenue it made from its first services was not nearly enough to cover its construction costs. Despite its connection with a ferry service on the east end, there wasn't enough traffic to lift its failing financial situation. And in 1847, it declared bankruptcy. And that same year, the Somerville and Easton were incorporated. The Central Railroad of New Jersey didn't truly come about until Somerville and Easton acquired the Elizabeth and Somerville Railroad in 1848 and changed both names to the Central Railroad Company on April the 23rd, 1849. After this union, the railroad wasted no time in expanding its reach outward across the state, completing its main line and reaching Phillipsburg in 1852. By far, Phillipsburg was one of the most important commercial centers of its time, with five major railroads, including the Central Railroad Company, Pennsylvania Railroad's Belvedere Division, and the Lackawanna and Western. However, the Central Railroad needed a better place terminal to cross the Hudson River and deliver coal from the mines in Pennsylvania, the same mines that brought New Jersey's canals great success. Most of the places at Tidewater were already taken and monopolized by other companies. Due to these problems, the Central Railroad of New Jersey chartered a waterfront location in Jersey City. Rather than following in the footsteps of its predecessors who tunneled through the Bergen Hill, the Jersey Central decided instead to opt for a far less expensive undertaking, bridging over the Newark Bay to Bayonne. It crossed south of Bergen Hill and followed the New York Bay's shoreline. Completed in 1864, the bridge across Newark Bay was massive and came out as 9,714 feet long. According to historic structures, it was made up of double-track timber trestles on either side of the cast and wrought iron swing bridge. The terminal itself, referred to as the Jersey City Terminal, was far more modest in scope. It was constructed mainly on landfills brought in from building excavations in New York and placed on timber pilings driven into the dirt. Both terminal structures were wooden, with a train shed receiving nine tracks near a headhouse that was both a concourse and a ferry shed. According to the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, this terminal saw great use as a route across the Hudson and a gateway to the ocean. But with the increasingly heavy demands from the flow of traffic that both the Central New Jersey Railroad and its terminal saw, 
this original terminal just wasn't enough. So in 1889, Peabody and Steams, a renowned architectural firm from Boston, designed and constructed a new terminal, which replaced it and became one of the major Hudson River terminals up until the post-war period. This new terminal was not only the primary terminal of the Central Railroad of New Jersey, but it also served the trains of Reading, Baltimore, and Ohio. It saw an incredible rise in patronage after the opening of the Ellis Island Immigration Station in 1892. Around this time, Central New Jersey ran 266 trains every week in and out of the new terminal. These routes were incredibly busy not only by its passenger services, but its massive freight and coal operations as Pennsylvania coal was carried alongside passenger ferries. Historical Structures reports that it was the greatest concentration of rail facilities in the New York Harbor area at the turn of the century. Once the railroad's Jersey City connection was complete, so too was its central division, from Jersey City to Phillipsburg. By far, it was the busiest part of the entire railroad, serving thousands of riders, commuter trains, and even local freighters, referred to as drills, every day. One of the most important divisions of the Central New Jersey is the Jersey Central Southern Division. It operated in far less populated southern regions, handling not only a wide variety of freight and cargo, including agricultural goods and materials for construction, but also a wide variety of commuters to various locations such as Atlantic City, Tuckerton, and Long Branch. One of the most significant contributions to the Southern Division's track length came from the Raritan and Delaware Bay Railroad in 1854. It was meant to connect New York with Norfolk's Virginia port across the Delaware Bay by steamship. This plan never came to fruition, but this system built a large portion of trackage across the state, opening its first segment in 1860 between Port Mammoth and Bergen Ironwoods via Red Bank. The mostly flat terrain made construction a far easier task, allowing it to reach Winslow in 1862, connecting the Camden and Atlantic Railroad. This, in turn, allowed service to reach farther than ever before, now through Camden, New Jersey. After acquiring the Violin Railway in 1872, further extensions were made past Winslow, and the completion of the line ensured that the Southern Division would reach throughout the lower portions of the state. Another important segment of the Southern Division was the New York and Long Branch Railroad in 1868. According to American Rails, it connected the Central New Jersey Railroad's Northern New Jersey lines to the south, opening for service between Perth Amboy and Long Branch in 1875. By 1882, it extended to reach Bayhead Junction, and it wasn't without competitors. A rival, Pennsylvania Company had plans to get in on the New York and Long Branch success by building a competing line. However, an arrangement was reached to share the line with the Central New Jersey handling the freight duties. Meanwhile, coal flowed through the Lehigh and Susquehanna Division, later called the Penn Division. And in 1871, the Central New Jersey leased the Lehigh and Susquehanna, adding new branches to tap mines as far out as Lee, Nanticoke, and Audenried, seeing its last significant extension in 1888 between Pittston and Scranton. In 1901, the Reading took control of the New Jersey Central Railroad, which was a highly used and profitable system. Until the Great Depression, the Classic Trains magazine even remarks that it put the first automatic semaphore signal into service in 1893. 
1926, the Central New Jersey also converted the Newark Bay Bridge into a four-track, 1.4-mile-long drawbridge to handle the ever-increasing demand of travelers everywhere. In its heyday, the Central Railroad of New Jersey was incredible in design and operation. But as the years went by, the Central New Jersey lost a fair amount of profit as coal lost its demand. The Great Depression also spelled disaster for the railway, forcing it to enter bankruptcy in 1939, where it stayed for a decade. After World War II, it emerged once again, though it was far from in the clear. American Rails reports that one of the railroad's biggest struggles was the increasing tax burden in New Jersey, coupled with the fact that operating and labor costs only climbed higher and higher. The number of passengers waned severely, to the point that running commuter and passenger trains was no longer profitable, and the central New Jersey was losing money fast. Then, the rise of the automobile sealed the railroad's fate, sending it into an early grave. Despite its innovative design that handled both commuters and valuable cargo, those behind it made a mistake in assuming the permanence of profitability. In the end, railroad companies went bankrupt thanks to the construction of highways, which were also able to carry freight. By the 1960s, there were now too many railroads and not enough passengers. Reading, Lehigh Valley, and the central New Jersey were all heavily affected by these new developments. They almost entirely relied on demand for coal, which was now completely obsolete. In one last effort to stay in business, the central New Jersey purchased 41 miles of trackage segment from Lehigh to New England in Pennsylvania for $10 million on October the 31st, 1961. These lines included, but were not limited to Tadmore Yard, the Bethlehem branch, and the Martins Creek branch. The venture proved fruitless, and hence, in 1967, the Central New Jersey Railway would declare its final bankruptcy. In that same year, New Jersey put in effect a plan to help save the railroads. As a result, the Central New Jersey trains were connected to the PRR's Pennsylvania station in Newark, terminating service at the Jersey City Terminal. However, the Central New Jersey still struggled heavily, eventually embargoing all lines in Pennsylvania in 1972, which the Lehigh Valley later took control of. On April the 1st, 1976, just a few years before the Newark Bay Drawbridge was demolished by the U.S. Coast Guard, the Central New Jersey was one of many bankrupt railroads to be absorbed into Conrail, which was the federal government's solution to the losses. Conrail was incredibly successful, and it wasn't long before two rivaling companies were competing for private ownership of Conrail in 1997. Finally, the two reached a truce, with Norfolk Southern Corp taking control of 58% of the railroad lines and CSX Corp taking 42%. The Conrail was bought for 10.2 billion, with hopes of offering lower shipping rates and faster, more efficient methods of hauling freight. In 1998, the Conrail was reconstructed into a switching and terminal railroad with 1,200 miles of track in three regional areas, opening again for operation in 1999 and expanding operations from northern New Jersey to New York's Staten Island. Much of the Central Railway was lost, but some of the network was assimilated into the Conrail. So let's take a look at what remains. Hidden along the coast of the Hudson River, the old terminal sits abandoned and overgrown by nature. 
Perhaps the terminal is one of the most incredible examples of urban decay in this area. Its old train shed has been reclaimed by nature ever since it was shut down in 1967, once filled with millions of passengers that visited here every year. The terminal itself remains derelict and forgotten by most New Yorkers, just frozen in time. Old departure boards and even old train cars remain on site, though the old tracks have long since been fenced off due to the structural collapse of columns and roofs. The terminal building's clock tower is sculpted with science, commerce, industry, and agriculture on its four corners, a reminder of the incredible economic contributions it made throughout its time. However, the area surrounding the terminal was brought back to life as Liberty Park. Today, the terminal even holds a ticket office and loading dock for the ferry to Ellis Island and Liberty Island tourists, along with memorials and tributes to the railroad's history. The abandoned Central Station isn't the only thing that remains of this incredible railroad. The Blue Comet, designed by the Central New Jersey's very own president, was often called the seashore's finest train. From 1929 to 1941, it ran to Atlantic City as a passenger train under the Central New Jersey's operations. Its opulence was recreated by the Whippany Rail Museum in the way of a club car named Jersey Coast. And while it never ran on the Blue Comet, it was built with an identical blueprint by the same builder in the same year as the Blue Comet's car. And of course, complete with the same mahogany interior. The only real difference are the carpeting and the seating styles. It was an enormous task that took several years to complete. The roof had to be restored, the cars had to be repainted to look like the Blue Comet car, and the damaged woodwork replaced, amongst countless other tasks. On September the 12th of 2010, the restoration was officially opened and marked as complete, now part of the Whippany trains as a first-class extra fare car visiting the Jersey Coast gives visitors a real taste of the luxury of the 20th century high life, thanks to the fantastic restoration, keeping the memories of the Blue Comet alive for decades. Now, if you're wondering about the fate of the real Blue Comet, five rail cars still exist, one of which is parked in Tuckahoe, New Jersey, awaiting restoration before returning to passenger service in the Cape May shorelines, which I presume would be a majestic experience. Without a doubt, the Central Railroad of New Jersey is a marvelous piece of history, with scattered rails hidden throughout the state reminding us of a time when the Garden State thrived. If you want more videos about New Jersey history, let me know by subscribing or commenting. Don't forget to share my New Jersey history playlist with your friends. This is Ryan Sokash, signing off.